Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 2 as we continue to make our way through this passage. Let me ask you a question. As you're turning to Luke chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 39 and 40. We're going to make a big progress today. We're going to hit two verses, three whole sentences. Uh, but we've got to learn what the Lord has for us there. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever considered the early years of Jesus? You know, there's not much information about him growing up, his interaction with his parents, his siblings, and other children. What type of child was he? Did he have to learn things like how to walk and talk and read and write? Did he have to learn those types of things? Did he ever make mistakes? Did he ever get an answer wrong on his homework? Did he ever forget things? Did he ever let his dog eat his homework? I don't know. We know that he was the son of God. But scripture also informs us that he was human. And he lived as a human. And he experienced all the things that you and I experience. So today we're going to tackle today the topic of the humanity of Jesus. In our previous passages, Luke had introduced us to two reliable, incredible witnesses so that you and I could have certainty that Jesus was considered the Messiah from birth, from a baby, from his conception even. From the angel Gabriel to the shepherds, Luke has given us several accounts that testify to this truth. Pastor John MacArthur writes that the accounts of Simeon and Anna, though they're very unfamiliar to most of us, play an absolute central part of the whole scene of the arrival of the Son of God and the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, as they serve as reliable and credible witnesses to whom Jesus is. And Luke's intent is to confirm for our benefit and encouragement that Jesus is the Savior who is Christ the Lord. So that's where we were other than this last week, the two weeks previous. We now are coming to Luke 2, chapter 2, 39 through 40, where in this passage today, Luke closes the birth narrative by summing up Jesus' early childhood years with three sentences, two verses, that point to both a normal upbringing, but yet also a special blessing. So with that, let's read those two verses, those three sentences. Luke chapter 2, 39, they're here on the monitor. But again, I always encourage you to bring your Bibles. We read, Luke writes, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Father, we pray for that type of favor. I pray that you would open up our minds and hearts this morning to consider these three sentences. Ones that we just see as a short summary, but yet there is some truth that we need to pause, to consider, to grab onto and allow it to uh, apply to our lives. So may your spirit have free reign, uh, uh, limit the distractions. Lord, let me speak words that are building and edifying. Father, let us know the difference between your truth and just my mere opinion. But Father, we pray that you would be glorified and our good would be accomplished 
as we respond to your Spirit's work. Thank you for Luke. Thank you for his, for his work in, in sharing here uh, the early years of Christ. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. I want to make some observations on those three sentences there, those, those two verses there. The first, just we'll let that pass. You know, I, I've ridden with these guys, the, the, the ambulance, and it is nothing but annoying when people don't get out of the way. That's what they're doing. They're trying to get people out of their way. Uh, the first observation, let's go on. Some of you might know that I'm, I'm the chaplain with the fire orange, so I get to ride with them and do things. So that's the only reason I mention it. So when I hear sirens, my ears perk up because the first thing I do is I pray for the guys. That's, that's probably rescue three or those. So I, that's why it always, so on Sunday, it really throws me off. I'm like a dog and a squirrel is what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Well, the first observation, we're going to make several just on these three sentences here, these two verses is the first observation that you and I can make is, is looking and we see the faithfulness of his parents, Mary and Joseph. They're pious Jews who raised Jesus in the customs and the law of Moses. Now, we had taken some time previously to look at what they were doing here in the passage. Previous, I'll lead you to the, the I'll just direct you to our website. You can see those messages. But we see that they're faithful in doing what is required by the law of Moses. Now, both Mary and Joseph have been chosen by Yahweh for this important task. They were chosen by God to, to serve as the human parents of the Messiah. They had the privilege and the great responsibility to raise him up in the nurture of the law as any pious family, Jewish family would done. Jesus himself would go on to testify in Matthew chapter 5 that do not think that I have come to a, abolish the law. No, I've, I've come to what? Fulfill the law. And so his parents stepping in, doing what he could not do as a baby, do that for him, help him. They are faithful parents. And this was part of God's redemption plan. As we shall see later, it was very important for the Messiah to obey all of the law perfectly. Though his parents did not fulfill the law perfectly, Jesus did. Scripture does depict them as faithful to the commands of the law. Now, the second observation that we could see here is pretty much probably what is missing here in this passage. This observation we're going to look at is Luke skips the flight to Egypt that Matthew speaks of. You say, wait a second, after they do the customs, he, they moved to Nazareth? Wait, I, Matthew tells me that they actually left for Egypt and then came back to Nazareth. Well, I want to share a little bit about that. I want to point out several things. First, we see that they did return to Nazareth to live and to raise their sons. But in Matthew, you might recall, after the wise men had approached King Herod and said, where is he who is born the king of the Jews? They looked to find him and, and Herod said he, he's to be born in Bethlehem. So they go there to find him. But as they leave, now you have to remember now, when we do the nativity scene, we usually have the scene where the wise men come when Jesus is a baby. But you have to remember the wise men did not come to see Jesus until he was at least almost two years of age. And we know that because Herod went to kill the children that were two and younger. And so you and I have to remember that. But in a dream, Joseph has this dream. And in Matthew chapter 2, the angel says, Rise, take up the child and the mother 
and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. So in Matthew, we see that Jesus is born. We see what we see in Luke is that they perform all the things. We see what, I think Jesus was 40 days, Forty days. they remain in Bethlehem for the next two years. And right before they were ready to go back to Nazareth, they flee back to Egypt. And then we read in Matthew chapter 2, verse 19, that when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord returned once again to Joseph and said, Now rise, take up the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So you see the bookends there. He did go to Egypt. But how long Jesus spent in Egypt has been a question that many people have debated over the last two millennia. There are many stories filled with myths and legends, speculations have been told, written and even filmed concerning his time in Egypt. From making live birds from clay to raising a boyhood friend from the dead. However, the best scholarship states that Jesus and his parents were only in Egypt from really just a few months to maybe a year or so. Jesus most likely was around two when they fled Egypt, and he was no older than four when they returned to Joseph and Mary's hometown of Nazareth. So there was a flight of Egypt. Matthew and Luke are not contradicting one another. But the time that he was, many think that Jesus was there until he was seven, eight, nine, and he did all these miracles. Those are just, uh, those are just myths and legends. Most likely, he was probably there for just a few months. And I won't spend a lot of time after the service. I can share you a little bit more historically how that timeline looks. Or you can Google it yourself if you like to look at that type of information. Here's the observation I want to make. The fact that there's no mention of the flight to Egypt is not surprising in Luke's gospel for he is writing to a Gentile audience and he's trying to give them certainty of the facts that of who Jesus was, of the life of Jesus in this portion that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was considered the Messiah from birth. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience and he's sharing with him that Jesus is the king and he's proven from very beginning that Jesus was rejected by Israel. That's the the theme of Matthew. So Luke is writing for a different, he's writing the things that are particular to his audience, to what he is trying to accomplish through the uh, power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So there is no contradiction, there is no trouble with those two. We just understand that after 40 days, they lived there till about, he was two years of age. They, they flee to Egypt for a, for a time. And as they come back into Israel, they then move to Nazareth to live. That's where Luke picks up. The fact that Jesus was raised in Nazareth is actually going to be a source of contention for his life and his ministry. In John chapter 1, verse 45, we read that one of the early disciples of Jesus, Philip, it says that Philip, Philip found Nathanael, and he said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. We have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You remember this? And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was considered a backward community. It was Hicksville to many. 
Uh, those are the, the hillbillies, so to speak. And I say that as one whose family comes from those types of hills. Is This is the type of thing that they thought of Nazareth. Nazareth, where there is nothing that good comes out of Nazareth. This would be a stumbling block for many who would come to uh, accept him or reject him. Many questioned whether Jesus could be the Messiah because of where he was raised, Nazareth. In John chapter 7, we read that others said when they heard him speak and they saw his miracles said, this is the Christ. And some said, but is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And so people would mix up the fact that he was born in Bethlehem, but lived in Nazareth. He was called Jesus of Nazareth. There was a division among the people over him because of where he was raised. However, their return to Nazareth is actually important. It was important for him to raise his family because it was a fulfillment of a prophecy found in Isaiah. I have that here on the monitor so you can see it. Hundreds of years before Isaiah, the prophet would write, but there will be no gloom for who who was in an anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt, speaking of the father, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in latter times, that's speaking of Galilee, that's where Nazareth was. He says, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light, has a light Shown. That's a prophecy speaking of the Messiah would come and they would see his glory. And we'll see that as we go further in Luke. But it was very important. It was part of prophecy that he would be raised in Nazareth in Galilee. So the third observation is that Luke states that Jesus had a normal childhood, experiencing the normal growth processes as every child would. He remarks that Jesus grew and became strong and filled with wisdom. This is similar to what Luke had written about John the Baptist earlier in chapter 1 when he said the child grew and became strong in spirit. The only difference between John the Baptist and Jesus, and, and as we've looked through Luke, is he has been paralleling those two men and, and their birth and, and their conception and what they did. The only difference between these two boys is that John is described as developing in a twofold manner while Jesus is developing in four different ways. Like John, Jesus had a normal childhood, but he grew up physically and intellectually and spiritually like all do. First, we see that he grew and became strong. Those words indicate that Jesus developed normally physically. Like other little children, Jesus' body grew in stature and strength. He would have drunk milk until he was able to eat regular food. He would have learned how to crawl and walk and tie his sandals. He would learn how to talk and read and write and do math and help around the house with chores. Yes, the very son of God who created all these things had to learn them as you and I did. All of the normal activities that children learned how to do as they grow, Jesus himself had to learn. Could you imagine Jesus as a three-year-old? We would, we would think, well, he was the son of God. He must have been able to speak Hebrew and speak all these things and do all these wondrous things. Now, that would just be freaky. No, he was a human. He had to learn these things as you and I did. 
He had to do the things that you and I think of as gross and things that are unmentionable. These are the things. To be filled with wisdom when it says that he was filled with wisdom. Now this doesn't mean just just intellectually that he was very, very smart, though he was, and we'll see that next week. Jesus would have grown in that area as well. But when you speak of wisdom in the Bible, to have wisdom, to be filled with wisdom, means this. You may want to write this down. means to the skill of godly living. That's what Proverbs is. When it says to have wisdom, it means to acquire the skill of godly living. How to please God. Interestingly, Jesus is called the wisdom of God. You and I know him as the word and the truth, the one who was active in creation. And even today in Colossians tells us that he upholds all of creation in his hands. Yet as a little boy, he still had to learn how to please Yahweh through obedience. He had to listen to read and study the Torah as every little child would have. We tend to think that Jesus didn't have to learn anything since he was God. However, scripture tells us that he put this aside and he humbled himself and he had to learn as you and I would have to have done. He would have had to obey his parents and his teachers. He would have had to love his, his brothers and sisters as any child would be expected to do. He learned gradually what God expected of him and how to do that as a young man, just as you and I do. And just as parents, we try to do with our children how to live godly. We need to acquire that skill. What is different between Jesus' development and that of the John the Baptist, and for many, is that the Luke records that the favor of God was upon him. That's that last phrase. This meant that even as a little boy growing up, is that he was the object of God's grace. This reflects more than just the normal common grace that all of us experience. Rain that rains on the just and the unjust. He has the sunshine. He grows normally. This word favor means to give a special benefit to. This is similar to what was written of the prophet Jeremiah. Before I formed, uh, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, the father says to Jeremiah. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. In other words, there was a special dispensation and a protection for Jeremiah that nothing would hinder him in his growth. He would be protected from danger, from death. Why? Because God had consecrated and appointed him a special role in the same way from birth. Jesus was the object of Yahweh's protection and grace. Though Jesus would have suffered from normal childhood sicknesses and pains and danger like many children today, he was protected by God's special favor and grace. We see this as one of the accusations Satan attacked him in the temptation. We'll see this in a couple weeks. You would not stumble. You would not, the, the angels would catch you. There's a special favor. So as we look at these three observations, We see that Jesus is growing up as any normal child would grow. And here's the key thought. The importance of this passage is simple. That even though he was born of a virgin, though through a supernatural conception, 
And yes, he was the son of God, the Messiah, the Lord, the Christ, the Redeemer. He was still human. And he experienced all the things that make one human. Now, Luke includes this simple summary of the development of Jesus as child in order to give us certainty that Jesus was human. This is important for you and I to grasp. It is sometimes difficult to understand fully, but we are to grasp it, to acknowledge it, to celebrate it. Yes, he was divine. He was the second person of the Trinity, but he was also truly and fully human. You see, this passage teaches us that number one, Jesus had a human body. In other words, Jesus got tired. He slept. He got hungry. He had to eat. He got thirsty. He had to drink water. He had to walk. He cried. He rejoiced. He engaged in human interaction with family and friends and society. He suffered. And like all humans, he also died. He was human. He had a human mind. He had to go through the normal learning progress and process. In other words, yes, he had to learn potty training. He had to learn how to walk, to talk. He had to learn obedience, how to do math and language, as I spoke early. He had to learn cultures and customs. We even know he had to learn a, a trade from his father. He had to learn how to do those things. What you and I need to recognize is that he was human. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 13. I just want to take a moment real quick and give you an example is that when you looked at him, you would see him as human. People viewed him as human. Isaiah tells us that there was nothing in the Messiah that if you were to look at him that you would say, wow, look, he's something extraordinary. The Bible actually says there was nothing uh, attractive about him. But look at Matthew chapter 13. In verse 53, and when Jesus had finished speaking of his parables and teaching, he went away from there. In verse 44, or 54, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in the synagogue. So he's speaking of those who grew up with him in Nazareth. And they were astonished. And they said, where did this what? Man get this wisdom and mighty works. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and not his brothers James and Joseph, Simeon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Jesus was a normal boy. Yes, there were probably was something a little bit strange, a little bit different about him, but they viewed him as a man. Even, even as a, 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 um, his family considered him human. In Mark chapter 3, it sees, we see that he's healing. He's doing all these things. And this great crowd is around him that he would not even eat. And when his family heard it, Mark writes, they went out to seize Jesus. Why? For they were saying he was out of his mind. Something's wrong with our brother. The man's gone crazy. Why? They saw him as a man, as a human. In John chapter 12, we, or John chapter 1, we see that Jesus, the Son of God, became human. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. But in verse 14 of John, what is uh, John chapter 1, what does the Apostle say? That the Word became flesh. 
and he dwelt among us. They knew he was human. This is what scripture tells us. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes that this is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, speaking of Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But that is not spiritual, that is first, but the natural. In other words, he was a natural human being. We understand this in Philippians chapter 2. You say, but how can Jesus, the Son of God, be human? How did he have to learn? Why did he have to learn how to talk and walk? Why would the one who could walk on water have to learn how to walk on dry land? How would the one who created the trees learn how to shape them into objects as a carpenter? How did he have to learn the Torah, the word of God? He is the word of God. Well, Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8 tells us simply that Jesus, taking the form of a servant, emptied himself, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Dustin has taken us through that passage of Scripture some time ago. What you and I understand is that, yes, he was the Son of God. At all times, he was the Son of God. His divinity was true, but yet he was also human. And he limited his knowledge of all things so that he could learn Hebrew, learn Greek, learn Aramaic, the, the languages at the time. He had to learn math. The one who had ordered the universe by mathematical terms had to learn one plus one equals two. The one who created algebra had to learn that the one who created geometry had to learn how to do that as he helped his dad build things and cut wood. And most likely, yes, he learned how to measure twice so he could cut once. That's a carpenter joke. I have not learned it myself. The writer of Hebrews tells us that although he was his son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He even learned to be obedient. Now, all of this is to show us that Jesus was truly human. Early in Christian, uh, Christianity, this truth was hotly debated, with many rejecting it, uh, trying to qualify it, or just denying it outright. However, Scripture teaches us without a doubt that Jesus was truly and fully human. Wayne Grubman, as you look here on the monitor, and his systematic theology captures it correctly when he writes, Jesus was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. You and I must understand that. The importance of Jesus' humanity cannot be overstated. Scripture is going to give us several reasons why his humanity, why you and I understand that he was truly and fully human, is important. And so I want to give you, I believe, five to six of those very quickly. The first one, as human, Jesus was our representative obedience. He was our representative obedience. The Bible tells us that his one trespass led to all condemnation, all man. Speaking of Adam's sin, that means by Adam's sin, we are all condemned. It tells us by one man's obedience, the, uh, the, the, uh, the many will be made righteous. The only way that you and I can stand before a holy God is because Jesus obeyed in his human form 
all things perfectly. Secondly, as human, Jesus was our substitute sacrifice and helper. The Bible tells in Hebrews that it's not the angel that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, it says Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, speaking in Hebrews, to make propitiation for our sins, that he may become the substitute sacrifice for us because he suffered when he was tempted. And because of that, he's able to help those who are tempted. Without Jesus' humanity, he would not be able to be our substitute sacrifice. He would not have been able to stand in our stead to save our lives. Not only that, we would not have the helper who knows when we're struggling in temptation. The Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted in all ways similar to how you and I are tempted. Thirdly, as a human, Jesus serves as the mediator between God and man. First Timothy tells us there is one God and then there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I've given you this story before. Remember the story of Job, the one who lost all things, just wanted to die. And his friends kept telling him, well, go to God and ask him, why is he, why did he kill your family? Why, why did he take everything that you own? Why don't you ask God why he's afflicting you? And Job said, who am I? I'm just a man. How can I go before a holy God and contend against him? He says, oh, I wish there was a daysman, a, a mediator who could stand between God and me and plead my case. And you've heard this story before as I shared this phrase, the daysman, a mediator. A daysman, a mediator in those days would be one who would stand between two people who had a problem. Maybe money was old, a debt was old, maybe there was an argument, and there would be one person who could stand and put his hand on one man's shoulder, put another and says, let's solve this. Similar to maybe what a, a parent might do to two siblings, his children. But let me ask you, who is it that can put his hand on my shoulder and put his hand on God's shoulder and say, God, let's hear his complaints. And here, listen to God's judgment against you. What man could do that? An angel could not. An angel looks into the things of redemption and wonders at them. They never can experience them. But what we see is Jesus comes. One who is fully and truly God. One who is fully and truly man. Made perfectly so that he could be our mediator. You know what's wonderful about scripture? You know how we always say, would you pray for me? Would you do this? Did you know that the Bible tells us that Jesus prays for you constantly? Yeah, I ask other people to pray. But let me ask you, have you ever, uh, ever been encouraged that Jesus knows you by name and prays for you? Why? Because he's the perfect mediator because of his humanity. Number four, as a human, Jesus is a pattern and example of how you and I are to live. 
You may say, well, how do I acquire the skill of God? What does it look like to love God? How does it look like to live for God? Well, look at 1 John says, whoever says he abides in the Father ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. 1 Peter tells us, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You may say, how then do I suffer through life? Well, suffer as Christ suffered. He opened not his mouth. He did not defend himself. He allowed himself. He forgave those who misused him. All the things that Jesus taught. How do you go through poverty? Jesus says, I don't have a place to put my head or food to eat, just what God provides. He's given us an example. How are you to live? Not like the Joneses, not like those that, that we see in the rich and the famous, not as, the, as your favorite uh, Instagram influencer, but as one who's patterned his life after Christ. Husband, do you want to know how you're supposed to love your wife? Love your wife as God gave himself, as Christ gave himself. To death. Well, wife, how, how am I supposed to, to, to submit to my husband? Well, just as Jesus submitted to the Father's call to go and die on the cross. Everything that you need for life and godliness is found in the way that Jesus walked as a human for you and I. And then number five, as a human, Jesus is the pattern of our redeemed bodies. Here is some hope. Jesus in human form suffered and died. And guess what? In human form, Jesus rose again. And as you and I look at the end of Matthew and at the beginning of Acts, we see that Jesus in a human body walked after he was rose again. He ate, he walked, he talked. He tells Thomas, go ahead and touch my finger, the, the, the nail prints. And the side. You know, I think this is, I, I don't know if this is necessarily true, but because of that passage, I believe the only one that will have scars on his body in his glorious redeemed body is going to be our Savior. You and I, we're, we will not have any disabilities in heaven. We will not have any scars. We will not have any pain. But Jesus will still carry his scars for their eternal. It shows what he has done, the lamb who was slain. But our pattern of our redeemed bodies, he tells us that we turn and we see that he too is in human form. So far, Luke has recorded, as you and I come to the conclusion of Luke 2, 39 through 40, three little sentences, but so much is packed in there. Luke has recorded the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, God becoming flesh. Now, as you and I move through the gospel, Luke and other scriptures, we're going to see that there are two titles that Jesus used for himself is the son of man. That tells us that he was human, but he also gives us that he is the second Adam. The second Adam is he comes and lives as Adam did. He does what the first Adam was not able to do. He does the obedience that God requires. So what you and I need to understand is that the humanity of Christ is very, very important for those five reasons. There are many more. I'm just giving you five today. 
You and I need to understand that and accept it. So what I want to come to here is how you and I apply this to our lives. What does it mean that Jesus is human today for us? Well, first, this doctrine of Jesus' humanity, we must say that our very salvation hinges on the acknowledgement and the acceptance and belief that Jesus was truly human. Here's what I'm saying. If you do not believe that Jesus was truly human, then you cannot know Christ. It is a qualifier to get into the kingdom of God. This is not my words. This is not my opinion. This is the words and the opinions of the Holy Spirit who writes the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 4. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. So you want to know who has the Spirit of God in him? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess this, Jesus is not from God. He says that this spirit is the Antichrist. So for you and I, we must come to accept and acknowledge and believe that Jesus was truly 100% human. Now, that is not something that you and I can fully grasp. You may not be able to explain it fully to someone, but yet in our minds and our hearts, we must struggle with that. We must come and believe it. There are many things in scriptures that you and I are called to believe that we cannot comprehend. I cannot comprehend the Trinity in all its facets. I cannot comprehend God's love for me. I do not understand why he died for me. I don't understand why God loves me. I barely love myself at many times. And we must understand this, but he's called us. This is important. They must understand that it is God, Jesus becoming flesh. And so this would pull out many, the Muslims, Hinduism, many others. We must understand this. The Ligonar statement on Christology declares that we affirm that as truly man, Christ, and this is what you must understand, Christ possesses all natural limitations and common infirmities of human nature. And that he is like all of us in all respects except for sin. And we'll speak on that issue a little bit later. Time doesn't permit me to go there. So he has the natural limitations and common infirmities of human nature. Jesus' feelings got hurt. If you pricked him, he bled. That suffering on the cross was real. I remember as a young person, you know, there was a lot. So back in the 60s, 50s, there was a lot of, you know, the one most, the one most wonderful story ever told or the greatest story ever told, uh, the Jesus film. There were so many of them. And I remember one of those as a young kid. Jesus was walking away after teaching someone and someone picks up a big old rock and they throw it at his back and it hits his back. And the way that the director depicted this was Jesus is hit in the back and just calmly turns around. He doesn't fall forward. He doesn't cry out in pain. And it's like, well, he's like superhuman. He's not. When they pulled his beard out, it hurts. Secondly, so not only is it something that you and I must accept, we may struggle with it. We may try to work it out in our minds, but we must understand it and believe that it's true. But secondly, this doctrine gives us hope, encouragement, and comfort. First, he gives us hope in that just as he rose in the flesh, 
So one day you and I will be resurrected and glorified in perishable bodies. In heaven, we are not ethereal angels. You will be able to poke each other. You'll be able to hug each other. You'll be able to high five and fist bump. If you want to do that in heaven, you're going to be able to do it. We will enjoy heaven, the new heaven and the new earth in real bodies. It's encouragement that just as he battled sin and overcame Satan, you and I too can be victorious in our sanctification. For he fought in his humanity. There's also comfort in knowing that he suffered as we have, and he is constantly praying for us, and that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hands. His humanity means that we are truly redeemed. Then thirdly, this passage can give parents an example to follow in raising our children, and trusting that God will watch over them and use them for his service. As parents, you know, we can be bombarded with all sorts of troubles and worries about raising our children. We are so afraid of ruining their future or doing something wrong. However, God has called us to be faithful in our parenting, pointing our children to Jesus and trusting in the Father's good care and grace. Do not despair if your children are not Jesus now. But just pray that one day, that he will introduce himself and call them and they too may become children of God. May God make us sufficient for such things. I'd like to close with this verse. It's found in Romans chapter 5. This is so important. Paul writes, "For For if because of one's man trespass, death reigned through that one man, speaking of Adam, Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. What is that one life of obedience, that one act of righteousness becoming human for us? For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. How does that happen? By humbling himself, coming in the form of man, living in humanity as you and I have, so that he may suffer all things, bear God's wrath, earn our righteousness, and come back for us one day. To God be the glory. Let's pray. As the worship team comes up, I want you to take a moment to just pause to consider the humanity of Christ and what it means for us that he prays for us, that he understands what it means to be human, to be tired, to suffer, to hurt, to be angry, and many times to be rejected. Let us go to the one who's that faithful high priest, the one who's the mediator between us, And may we as parents recognize that just as Mary and Joseph were faithful in raising Jesus, that you and I are to be faithful in raising our children, pointing them to Christ. Let us do so with God's grace. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. And I pray that whatever's on someone's heart today, that this passage will speak to them. Let it do its work through the week. Let it marinate through their heart, through their soul maybe to our very, or, uh, very uh, bones if necessary. Lord, that we may respond and humble ourselves, that we may do as you called us to do. We thank you for your goodness and your word. 
your name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.